0: The following message is from the 2018 IBCD Summer Institute, Loving Wayward Souls. I want to thank you all for coming back. And uh, if someone can get those doors in the back, that would be helpful. Thank you for coming back, though. I always consider it a great mercy when, after hearing me once or twice, people return, so thank you you know i also i also stand here very aware that you know it's it's easy to be the guy that kind of flies in and drops some messages but the uh you know the the true heroes in this area are the counselors and the pastors and the, the lay people that are serving in local churches and are are working to comfort sufferers and to pastor churches and to train Counselors in the, in the real work of, of ministry. So I, I thank God for you and what God is doing through your labors in, in this area. So thank you. You can open up your Bibles to 2 Timothy and just kind of stick your finger in there. The title for this session is Departures, Desertions, and Leadership Suffering. There's kind of a subtitle that I work with too sometimes with this, and it's "Where is God when people leave?" and uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about the experience that we have of of having people that you're close to in the church or leading in a church and having people pull away but but there's there, there's also a corresponding message that that needs to be heard. See, th- this message is aimed at helping leaders and helping people to interpret and to enjoy comfort in the experience of people having left their church. But there's, there's a whole other message that needs to be delivered which explores the ways that leaders bring that on themselves. And that's not what we're going to be talking about this morning. Um, so I want to make that distinction. So let's, let's just stop and pray. And we'll jump in then. Lord, I want to ask you to magnify your name and to build your church through our time together this morning and to specifically build your church by, by inspiring our heart and desire to maintain a vibrant part of what you're doing in and through the local church even as we experience these pains and hardships within the context of the church. I pray you would meet us through this material and that you would help us to serve others in, in what we hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, as I indicated, this morning I want to explore a question that is imposed upon every Christian, every leader, every counselor who is truly committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. And that question is, how should we interpret people's departures from our church? How should we interpret it when people leave our church? How should we think about their separation from us? Or or to put it plainly, it's the, the subtitle I mentioned, where is God when people leave? There's a great quote by J. Oswald Sanders that I brought along uh, from his book on spiritual leadership. He, he once said, a cross stands in the way of spiritual leadership. It is a cross upon what, which we must consent to be impaled. Now, the wise leader is not gonna bring up that quote when they're recruiting elders or, or, or other counselors or things like that, but you'd know as well as I do, that you're going to find the reality of that etched upon the heart of anybody that's been leading in a local church for more than a year or two. Because that leadership experience imposes a kind of paradox on us. A paradox where people are our greatest joy, and yet they are also often the cross upon which we must consent to be impaled because we are, are called by God to love them, to nurture them, to care for them, to counsel them, only to have some of them you know, hit the eject button and, and, and just head out, or to determine that they're called somewhere else, or to get drawn away by some misunderstanding or some disagreement, or even to desert you, to put it in that category, which is a very biblical category, to desert us and then to revise the reason that they've left and, and, and make you the reason for all of their trials and all of their tri- tri- tribulations. And people can be pretty unthinking in moments like that. You know, they're unaware that, that there's really this knife that is piercing your soul because you're the one that's going to be lying awake for another night seeking the grace to endure the trial that that incites upon us. Charles Spurgeon was once teaching his students at the pastor's college, and he made the following comment. He said, one crushing, bl- one crushing blow or stroke has sometimes laid the minister very low. The brother most relied upon becomes a traitor. Ten years of toil do not take so much life out of us as we lose in a few hours. By Ahithophel, the traitor, or Demas, the apostate. I mean, you read that quote, you can almost hear the heartache behind his words. Here's what I think about. It. Even for Spurgeon, this wasn't theoretical. Even for the Prince of Preachers, he understood this experience that we're talking about this morning. And sometimes it's it's kind of a twofold problem. It's, it's not just the departure but it's the manner in which people leave, it's the way that they explain their departure, it's the way that they justify their decisions because let's be honest, oftentimes it happens in a manner where your life and your leadership all of a sudden goes under the microscope. And so I guess what I'm asking this morning is how, how do we live through the unremitting criticism and the accusations that seem to accompany abandonment or departures. And then how does a Christian continue without just becoming cynical? You know, you you build your life, you build in community, you go into a small group, you're basically in it, you're pushing all your chips to the middle. You really believe that God is in this for you and that these relationships are something that God has given you. And then all of a sudden it changes for some reason and it's very hard not to feel like you're being defrauded like the very church that you've given yourself to or the very people that you've given yourself to or somehow have turned the tables and so it gets back to the question that we were asking earlier where is god when people leave and in a very dark moment of of my life in trying to address that question i i i was studying in second timothy and One thing that's notable about this epistle is it's the last book that Paul has written or wrote. So he was on the threshold of death. I think John Stott calls it in his commentary, the last will and testament of the apostle Paul. (laughs) And, And what seems so clear in this letter is how unresolved everything is relationally in his life. And the effects of the departures and the, the, the abandonments and desertions have had on them. They've left their mark upon them. So, let's just walk like beginning in, in chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says this, all of Asia has left me. I mean, we've all had bad days, right? <laughs> but have you ever been out? All of Asia, a whole, a whole section of the world has left me. And then he gets personal. He says, among them are Fidulus and Hermogenes. In chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, he talks about how Hymenaeus and Philetus have swerved from the truth. In chapter 4, verse 9, he talks about how Demas has deserted him. Chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Alexander the coppersmith, you remember him? He says, he did me great harm. Chapter 4, verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one stood by me. My first defense, no one stood by me. And then he adds this, all deserted me. Last epistle. Last thing he ever wrote. See, it's hard because we don't expect stories to end this way. We don't expect the race that we're running in God and in Christianity to end like this. Because it's also open ended, it's also unresolved. I mean, third grade English taught us that the elements of a good story are character, plot, context, conflict, and resolution. In order to have a good story, we have to have resolution. But here in 2 Timothy, we have no resolution, it's not a good story. Because we encounter the grief of all these unresolved relationships with with Paul finishing his ministry with all the, the ministry ambiguities intact. It's not like they all came clear. It's not like there was this big revelation. See, Paul understood what Sanders meant. The people were the cross upon which one must be impaled. And, and, and that so often we think about that in a way that it's just ministry in the generic sense. That it's just going to be trials in, in the sense that that comes with ministry or that comes with counseling. But no, in reality, it's about people. People are the cross upon which we must consent to be impaled. And not to go all piper on you, but God doesn't want us to waste these departures and these desertions. So... How I have the material organized is how can we waste our departures and desertions? And here's number one. We will waste our departures if, number one, we believe that God has not ordained them. We believe that God has not ordained them. See, God's sovereignty isn't abstract or, or, or generic. It's expressed very specifically through the actions and the absences of those, oftentimes, those who are closest to us. You know, I mean, if you're involved in a local church, the departure of the fringe guy or the fringe woman, I mean, that's sad. Nobody wants that. But it doesn't force the why question. No, it's the loss of Demas. It's the loss of the co-worker, the person you've traveled with, the one you've made sacrifices with, that really expose what we believe about God, what we believe about the nature of the church, what, how we think this whole thing moves forward. It's that kind of experience that dumps the inscrutable why on the doorstep of your ministry. And, and it's not like Scripture's explaining these things. If scripture articulates them. It, it brings stories forth about them. But it's not bringing us an interpretation. We see in Scripture, different places in scripture that God ordains, but doesn't always explain departures. We have, you know, like, like Joseph and his brothers, we get some sense of the end of what that was all about, but he lived with years, for years without any understanding. But Paul and Barnabas would be a great example. Paul and Barnabas is this painful, unexpected turn in redemptive history as they're traveling together and then they have a conflict and all of a sudden they're not traveling together. And there's no explanation, no interpretation, no resolution whatsoever. I mean, we just read portions, of, or refer to portions of 2 Timothy. I mean, it basically reads like a list of Cold War defectors of people that have left. And, and even in chapter 4, the very last things that Paul writes, there's no interpretive key in here anywhere. Because sometimes it just pleases God to shake our world. And he doesn't feel obliged to sit down and explain to us why. Or even to ask our counsel on whether this is a good time for it to happen or not. And and even as it's happening, it's not like it's always happening with interpretation. That you always do understand exactly why this is happening. I've been pastoring now for... For 33 years I remember going through a very difficult time as a lead pastor where the church was just being shaken and people were leaving and I was under criticism and I remember sitting with folks who were, who, who, who were thinking about leaving or wanting to leave and I was trying to understand and, and, and some of the concerns that they raised were certainly valid but I couldn't think it doesn't seem to warrant leaving over this particular concern. And I just remember back to that time where these dear friends departed, these long term members. who I always, in writing the story, I always thought this is how we just go into the future all together. But I watched them leave with many of them unable to offer me a satisfying answer to the question of why. And I began to realize over the years that that's just part of the irony of leading that's part of the the needing to trust god in a broken world where sometimes god just decides to shake the church and let some of the fruit fall to the ground and roll on to another orchard and let another pastor pick it up and say look at this great fruit they must cut, they must be coming to our orchard because it's better because we're better tasting over here you know, I remember, I remember driving through a, a toll booth during one of these seasons, back when toll booths were man and woman, and you know, had somebody in there taking your money, and I was, I was handing the attendant my cash, and I remember, I remember looking at them thinking, what a great job that would be. What a great, you know, it would, you know I'll bet nobody ever leaves a toll booth attendant. You know, there's such consistently, so much consistency. But, it, you know, that, that's kind of the challenge, isn't it, is that, is that pain bends our reality. And, and it's the unusual leader that can walk through situations like that without it touching issues of identity. I think that's one of the God's intentions in it. It goes down to the issue of identity. Because I remember in that experience I was telling you about just a few minutes ago, when the people were leaving, I remember thinking, I'm failing them, and I don't even know why. I don't even understand why. If we were building right, folks wouldn't be leaving. We must not be building right. Folks are leaving, but I don't know how, how or where we're not building right. And, and, and I don't take into the call. I didn't take into the call at least that time, this idea that the call to ministry is a call to suffer, to know him in the fellowship of suffering. But I also, I always painted suffering in an abstract and generic way or maybe some health malady that would come upon me only to realize, no, ministry suffering is about people. It's about people. So God installs these seasons to remind us that we follow a Savior. And that Savior suffered the desertion of people see, see you know we don't often think about that part of the gospel storyline but for the cross it meant jesus's denial his betrayal his abandonment from all his friends his alienation him being misunderstood and by the way that's by all of his closest we're not even talking about the masses at this point by the closest people to him And by the way, the student is not greater than his master, so if they deserted the master, they're probably going to desert us as well. And if you would lead in the local church, you must consent to be impaled upon that cross. And if you don't want to be impaled, then that's understandable. That may not be your call, but you must recognize that that's part of what comes with the church. And it's not like departures are always bad, you know? Because sometimes God removes people because it's better for both them and for the church. I mean, there's no more frustrating experience than trying to lead people that don't agree with the theology and the practice of the church or or are only there because they think you're the best thing in town for now until something else comes around. And sometimes God just wants to bless people in new ways. And sometimes he wants to remove the ambivalent leaven in the church. And it can be painful, but it's very necessary. And when it does happen, it's good to remember that your experience is not unique in history. I and mean, we read the quote about Spurgeon, but it's not its only really happened about history, it's happened in it happens in our day. I mean, no one escapes this. You ever hear the story about John Piper losing 25% of his church over, over the, the worship director and the organ thing, and, or John MacArthur, how he walked into his elders' meeting one day, and he said, brothers, it's good to see you. It's good to serve in ministry together, and, and, uh, and, and four of the six of them stood up and said, if you think we're your brothers, you've got something else coming, and they resigned on the spot. His church went into crisis. See, we all go under the knife. It's it's how we interpret the cutting that it's crucial. And Paul knew this, and he stood on the sovereignty of God. And, and, And God supplied him something where he actually anticipated a rescue. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, But the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. So that through the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. That's where he took all of that. So we're going to waste our departures if, number one, we believe that God has not ordained them. Number two, we'll waste them. If we conclude that being proven right is more important than being proven faithful. You know, it's remarkable when I read 2 Timothy all the things that Paul doesn't say. There is no apologetic, there is little defense, there's, there's one warning and I wanna come back to that. But it's evident that his goal in relating these experiences was not somehow just to vindicate his ministry. And I, I realize even as I say that how different I am than paul was because when people leave something that i'm involved with and i'm leading then i want to be vindicated because quite honestly i i wrestle very deeply sometimes with self-righteousness and i want to be right and i want to be seen as right and if alexander punches i want to counterpunch back and if i'm accused i want to be vindicated and you know, if you've pastored for any period of time, you you probably know what it's like to have some Alexanders. And and each time they leave, there is this predictable heart uh, pathway for me. I want to I want to fight for the correct narrative. Now, who has the correct narrative in life, really? I mean, only God has the correct narrative. All the rest the rest of us are just working with perspectives fallen perspectives that we have that interpret reality in the way that we see them. Only God has the perspective. But I want to fight for the correct narrative, which means mine, so that I can maintain a moral high ground in my own mind and therefore be vindicated from whatever it might be, the harmful slander that's circulating or or whatever. Or or as they're leaving, I, I can sometimes want to, you know, have a sit down and try to convince them of my position rather than just listening and hearing and using it as an opportunity maybe to learn something but typically when i do that i'm not i'm not displaying the gospel i'm not helping them and and there are times that i think people need to be warned about i I keep using alexander's name because that's the one place where uh, where paul says he warns them about alexander he did me great harm beware of him be on guard against him. The Lord will repay him. Uh, beware of him. You know, but th- but even the warning is filled with this trust in God. The Lord will repay him. Beware of him. But the Lord will repay him. It's not this mission of vindication for Paul. A- and I guess what I'm saying is that we can't live on a quest to be proven right. And that's such a temptation when people leave. It's such a temptation to want to think that. No, ultimately, they're going to realize by walking the path that they're walking and the bad fruit that they're going to experience that they should ultimately find their way back here. It's, it's, it's very understandable. It's a really human thing. But it's not the way those things tend to happen. I mean, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but it's a very small percentage of people that actually come back to a church they've left. It's just not the way people, people work. It does happen occasionally. But we want, to be lived, we want to live to prove ourselves right and to be, you know, which for me, it just leads to self-righteousness. You know, Jesus said something interesting. He said, wisdom is vindicated by her children. In other words, the wisdom of what you're giving your life to building is not necessarily going to be validated by your own generation. You know, there's a sense where it's vindicated by, by the fruit of what comes from whatever you're giving your life to, which means it's going to take some time for your decisions to be proven right or wrong. And so we have to have kind of a, we have to have a big soul and an open hand with people that are, are making these decisions because we can act at times like leaving the church as people leaving the Savior. And there's a big difference between the two and so you know i think when you have an open hand and an open soul and you know you're seizing opportunities to humble yourself you can you can you can you can trust god and you can let people go because leaving your church is not leaving the gospel and uh and it's also good to remember that you've left some churches <laughs> i mean we don't tend to think about that part of our story but yeah i mean i left the church to go to seminary and i left the church to go join another church to be part of a church plant, and, Oh, yeah, that, that was probably hard for some people. Wouldn't tend to think about that. You know, that we were at one time those, those folks. So Paul's trust, I think, should be reflected in how we engage folks when they inform us that they may be leaving the church that we love. Let them touch our humility. Let them touch our gentleness and, and, and let me, let's just settle this in, in our mind right now, is that it's unusual for people to leave a local church in a humble way. It, it doesn't mean they're going to leave in a really proud way. But if you're kind of living with this vision that somehow what they're going to do is they're going to come, they're going to sit down with you, they're going to walk through this process, they're going to invite prayer, they're going to invite you to come along and visit each church that they visit, so that they can turn to you and say, well, what do you think? It doesn't work that way. It's more likely that you're going to be informed, and it's going to hit you out of the blue, because people just don't know how to do that, you know, and they feel their own sense of, like, okay, this is really weird, and I've been a part of this, and I don't know how to let folks down, and I think I'm just going to do it this way. It'll be easier for everyone. You know, people just... So, you know, we have to be humble in the face of that. Even when they're not being humble. You know, if I only humble myself in front of humble people, I'm not really humble. It's easy to be humble in front of humble people. You know, we all love love praying and being around Jesus because He's perfect. It's the church that creates the problems. It's being humble around them that's, that's... a better, a better gauge of our true humility. So if you find yourself kind of amping up for a final showdown when somebody has told you that you're leaving, you might be heading in the opposite direction than where Jesus wants us to go. So that's just some random thoughts on the second point of wasting our departures, that we will waste our departures if we conclude that being proven right is more important than being proven faithful and i went through that one a little quicker because i wanted to spend a little bit more time on this last one that we will waste our departures if we believe or i'm sorry if we fall prey to what i'm calling the captivity of closure it's, it's hard to to read Second Timothy, again, Paul's last will and testament. It's hard to read Second Timothy and come away with an expectation that life and relationships are going to somehow wrap up into this neat bow in this world which is fallen and broken. In fact, I wanna press that a little further for you and and get you thinking about this in in what might be a different way for you. And that is that a broken world is inherently open-ended. And yet the irony of that is that we are called nonetheless to be a people of faith bringing vision to relationships, bringing vision to the local church despite the fact that the local church exists in a broken world that is inherently open-ended. And, uh, and, and that we don't know where the whole relationship thing is even going to go. And yet we give ourselves to it, and that's part of how we express our faith towards God. There's an interesting vision of faith that's described in Hebrews chapter, chapter 11, verse 13, where after the catalog of heroes of, of the faith are celebrated, it says... It says this, listen to this. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Now, let's, you know, just think about that for a second. They died in faith. Oh, they died in faith because they stood in faith, and then because they stood in faith, they received the promises. No, no. These all died in faith, having not received the things they prom- that were promised. In other words, they died with unfulfilled promises. They died with unsatisfied dreams. They died with life that was open-ended. Everything didn't resolve. Everything didn't have a bow on it. Some of the complexities that they carried through their adult life remained even up to death. Some of the relationships that they had just remained unresolved. Could we die that way are you holding on to this vision that somehow it's all going to wrap up in the future that person that you're thinking about right now that's that's kind of in your mind and in your heart that somehow god's faithfulness is going to be measured by whether he delivers on that relationship because that's not how a broken world works and that's not, that, that may, God may not want to relieve you of the burden of the faith that that incites within your soul to have to believe him for that. There's all kind of ways that, that God, God works. Last Easter, I woke up on Easter morning and I was kind of thinking about Easter and I was kind of brimming with, with joy and pondering the resurrection. So I grabbed my phone and I started sending out texts to just a bunch of old friends celebrating Easter morning. And I decided to include a guy who I knew had left our church with a lot of disappointments. And uh, and some of the disappointments were with me. And my prior attempts to reconcile with him were unsuccessful. But I thought, hey, it's Easter and... And in Easter, we celebrate the resurrection. And with the resurrection, anything's possible. So I sent out this text to him. The most charitable way that I could relate his response back was that he felt defiled by hearing from me. And he went on to explain in his response that he didn't even think he would see me in heaven, so he didn't understand why I was celebrating resurrection. And... Uh, And that he wanted no contact with me whatsoever and so there i sat on easter morning and i'm thinking what what do i do when someone marks my motives as irredeemable and refuses any attempts i have to reconcile with them or to resolve it with them what what do i do can i move forward with that can i trust God with that? Is there a way? Is that going to lock me down for the day? Is that going to steal my worship away during the morning service? And then there's another corresponding question that I have to ask, and that is, where in my life might I be the one rejecting the Easter morning greeting and the celebration as well? See, it's just hard to come to terms with the idea that God's agenda might involve not resolving those things. In other words, that there are some things in our life, there are some ways that godliness can be achieved. There's some ways that godliness can only be achieved by being deprived of certain things we treasure. That's a really hard thing to come to terms with that God might incite desires in our heart that he does not satisfy. Because the pursuit and the faith that are attached to those desires will do a deep work within us, will mature us, will open our soul, will help us to be better leaders, will help us to have more tender hearts that can only be touched by that kind of experience. And where, what, what we have to avoid is what I'm calling this captivity of closure. We can't fall prey to the captivity of closure. This longing that we have that denies the implications of fallenness. This longing that we have that denies the implications of a broken world. Because all it is, to be honest, is it's nothing more than an attempt to gain peace outside of faith to gain peace without faith. Because faith does not ultimately need a resolution. Faith does not need a certain outcome for faith to be biblical. It just needs to know there's a God, he has promises, and I trust him. Because faith sees the unseen. I mean, that's part of the nature of faith, right? Faith sees eternal realities. So the leader who draws stability only from the present, is actually an untested leader, or draws stability only from things being resolved, that does not make him a mature leader. In order for that maturity to work, we have to draw our confidence by, by a different set of closures. And it involves looking back and looking forward. And when I say looking back, I'm saying that the the gospel represents God's closure on the most important open-ended matter in the universe, which is our sin and our rejection of God. So our rebellion from God, our alienation from our king, our condemnation before the judge, we have closure on what matters most. But we only experience that right now in a, in a broken world. It's kind of like we have the first fruits, but we're receiving the first fruits of it in a broken world. But that gospel has to remain in the forefront of our mind when we think about closure so that we avoid the captivity of closure, that the gospel becomes the point of orientation for everything open-ended that we experience, so that we can say because of the gospel, I don't need to be completely understood because the Savior who knows me and loves me understands me. Or I don't need to be vindicated right now because God vindicated himself by judging Jesus in my place. So I can, I can rest in God's vindication and entrust my life to one who judges justly. You know, I, I hope that relationship that you're thinking about I hope that relationship is, is mended. But don't need that. I, 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 hope, I hope it. I don't need it. Like, well, let's get back to the one I told you about, the texting one. I hope that relationship gets mended. But I don't need it because the cross has met my deepest need. And we have to look back. And look back at, at what God has accomplished for us in Christ. Because that's what helps us avoid the captivity of closure. But listen, it's not just looking back. It's looking forward as well. See, we don't have it in the present, but we look back and we look forward. Because heaven represents God's final resolution. It's the new Jerusalem. It's, it's not just going to heaven. It's heaven coming to us in the new Jerusalem. So the open-endedness that we experience in this life is kind of factory-installed to remind us that we're not home yet. That these, and one of the things that, that those unresolved issues in your life do, one of those, unres, those unresolved relationships, part of what they do is they agitate you for a place that's coming that will no longer be like that. They agitate us for heaven. And, and they're, in some ways, they're a ping, you know, like a sonar ping that's coming from heaven. And it's not fulfilled yet, but it will be. It's coming. It will, it will come. Every lack of closure that you experience, every lack of resolution that burdens you points forward to something that will ultimately be satisfied in heaven. I've drawn such encouragement from, from Psalm 56, Verse 8. Where, where the psalmist says you have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Think about what's being said there. God keeping count of our tossings in the middle of the night, those things that have kept us up in the middle of the night. We can't get peace. Our minds are racing. We just wake up and we can't go back to sleep or we wake up and we can't even get out of bed because we're so discouraged. I've kept count of your tossings. Put your tears in my bottle. God's stowing each and every tear that we have shed over the church, over people in the church, over people who are no longer in the church. And he says they are all remembered in my book. Listen, there is no broken relationship that you have wept over. There is no baffling problem that tosses you in the middle of the night. There is no unforgiving Judaizer who is aimed at you and is giving you problems where God is not paying keen attention to the effect that it's having upon you. Down to to every tear you are shedding, and God is whispering to you in that moment, son, daughter, daughter the resolution will come but not today and those loose threads that you have in your life you know they just they they deepen your longing for another world and they're they're factory installed in this world for that purpose see we have to remember that that there's no way to follow a crucified Savior and to avoid the cross. But we have to see the cross through relational eyes. And a lot of times we don't do that. We we make it abstract and convoluted. But it's really it's really about these relational things. And I think one of the ways that we can serve one another, and if you're here and you know other people in the room or or you're in a small group, one of the ways we can serve each other is just to remind each other that, hey, closure is overrated. In this world, it's overrated. And we can't spend our lives holding God hostage until he delivers on our expectations of how he, how we think this thing should be resolved. Listen, Paul never got closure on Demas. He never got closure on Alexander. Sometimes the best way to get beyond something is just to apply the gospel and keep your legs moving. Just keep your legs moving. I, I remember uh, b- being another season, I was, I was uh, you a know, season of a lot of criticism. Uh, you're detecting a theme in my life, aren't you? Um, this was one of those where I was deeply discouraged. I was not sure... That I was going to make it, meaning you know the whole ministry thing. I just thought I'm not sure this is worth it. And uh, I was reaching out there to a guy named Joe, and Joe, this was in Philadelphia. Joe was a boxer; he was an Olympic-contending boxer. And we were out walking one day, and just out of curiosity, I said, "I said, Joe, what's it like to be? You know, give, give me the average day of a boxer." And so he would talk about get, get up 5, 4 o'clock in the morning and what they'd do for the first two hours and what they'd do. And, uh, and it was utterly fascinating. And I, and, and I said, really? That, that's really interesting. And then he made this passing comment. He said, yeah. He said, well, some of these would be really cool because they would bring in the black belts for us to spar against them. And I said, well, wait a minute. Black belts? I said, you'd, you'd spar against black belts? He said, oh, yeah. We spar against them all the time. And I said, really? I said, well, who, you know, who, who would win? And he said, oh, we'd kill the black belts every time. And I said, really? I said, tell me about that. Why would you be able to kill a black belt every time? And this is what he said. He said, boxers learn how to absorb blows. They have multiple blows coming at them all the time, and they have to learn how how to absorb blows, where black belts just aren't as accustomed to taking the hit. And I felt in that moment God asking me the question, are you going to be a black belt or are you going to be a boxer? Are you going to learn to take the hits? You know, if there are any pastors in the room, I, let me just make a comment to you right now. <clears throat> pastors are fathers. Fathers take the hit. Teenagers don't take the hit. If you want to be a teenage pastor, you, you run from the hit. You know, adolescence is, is different that way. An, an adolescent withdraws. An adolescent lives in self-pity. An adolescent, you know, seeks to retaliate. But if you want to be a pastor, you must be a father. You must learn to take the hit. I mean, what is the gospel if, if not the good news that Jesus took the hit for us? That he absorbed the blows for our sin. And so to be a pastor is to, is to be a father, and to be a father is to be willing to take the hits, to be willing to be impaled upon the cross by your consent. So for the rest of us, I, I don't understand why whatever happened in that situation that you're thinking about happened. You know, why your team member bailed upon you or that close friend that you thought you would always have fellowship with has left the church or, or that one leader you know, deserted you at the worst time or the folks who in that core group that were pledging their undying uh, affection and attendance and attention I, I, I can't explain the apparent absurdities of all the desertions that take place in, in the church but I can say this I can say that when you feel that stab of betrayal when you wave your final goodbye to them, when you trust God, even while you're, you're wiping a tear from your eye, that you can be confident that the cross not only works together for your good, but for the good of those that you serve, and that you too will be able to say, just like Paul does in verse 17 of chapter 4, but the Lord stood by me, and He strengthened me, so that through me, the message might be proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. Let's pray. Lord, these are weighty burdens that we bear. And it it stirs up many things to think about the people and the pain from the past. And yet we We are so grateful to remember this morning that we are not alone. We feel alone sometimes. It feels so isolating. We're not alone. That we follow a Savior who was denied and deserted and alienated and abandoned and ultimately even by the Father. Lord, we we have the Apostle Paul reminding us of what it was like at the end of his life and reminding us of the reality of ministry. And we ask you now, for us, that you would align our expectations with the reality of your word, align our expectations with the reality of the world in which we serve, and ignite our hope for the world that that we go toward. And the way that there is a place and a time where all things will be resolved, where everything open ended will be closed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Copyright 2018 IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available on our app and at ibcd.org.